You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 296, The Battle of Utah Springs. We last left General Nathaniel Greene and the Southern Continental Army back in episode 287 when the Patriots forced the British to give up most of their outposts in South Carolina, including the large base at Fort 96. By this point, Greene's Continentals were exhausted. They'd been on the march for months. The summer heat and the spreading malaria finally convinced Greene to give his men a rest. In mid-July 1781, Green set up camp in the high hills of the Santee, where the heat was a bit less oppressive and the mosquitoes a bit less unbearable. As the Continentals recovered, the South Carolina state soldiers and militia continued to harass smaller British deployments and supply lines. Then, after the Dog Days campaign, which I covered in episode 292, South Carolina General Thomas Sumter released most of the state soldiers and himself left for his plantation in North Carolina. This left the only significant force still in the field, a relatively small group of a militia under Colonel Francis Marion. General Green wasn't sure of his next steps. With Sumter's state troops mostly gone home, the Continental soldiers under his command felt abandoned and not particularly motivated to defend a state where the locals seemed to be taking a break. One possible course of action was to march his Continentals back to North Carolina and take the Loyalist stronghold at Wilmington. Green was still concerned that the larger British army under General Cornwallis might march south once again to confront his army. If Green took Wilmington, then marched north to link up with Lafayette's division in Virginia, the two of them might be able to take on Cornwallis there. Moving his small Continental army north, however, might give the appearance that the Patriots were ceding South Carolina. Now, I've mentioned before that around this time there was discussion in Europe of peace negotiations, which might end up granting independence only to those areas that were still occupied by Continental forces. So Green's army leaving South Carolina might end up ceding South Carolina to the British in one of these negotiations. Now, there was also word of a French fleet that was sailing up from the West Indies, which Green hoped might cooperate with him in an effort to retake Charleston. So in the end, Green opted to remain in South Carolina and continue to harass the British presence there. On August 5th, Green deployed the cavalry under Colonel Lighthorse Harry Lee to reconnoiter the enemy. Several days later, Lee reported using 60 horsemen to attack a British supply train escorted by about 300 British infantry. The enemy held formation and repulsed Lee's attack, Lee believed that he could continue to harass the British on the outskirts of Charleston and requested that Green send more infantry to back up his cavalry. But with most of the state soldiers having gone home, 
Greene did not think this was the right time to risk his army in a major assault on Charleston. There was also the issue of marching back through swampy lowlands at the height of malaria season. As I said, only Colonel Marion's militia remained active in the field around this time. Instead, Greene focused on rebuilding an army that could be a real threat to the British in South Carolina. He wrote to Colonel William Henderson, who had taken command of what was left of Sumter's brigade, and also to Andrew Pickens to assist in the enlistment of 500 men for one year to support the Continentals in South Carolina. He also wrote to General Jethro Sumner to recruit an army in North Carolina that could be of assistance. It was around this same time that word spread of the execution of Isaac Hayne in Charleston. This assisted greatly with recruiting as South Carolinians were inspired to fight to avenge Hayne's murder. In early August, Governor John Rutledge returned to the state. Arriving in Green's camp, Rutledge meant that Green could coordinate with a civil authority that might also help in getting more men to join the fight. Green and Rutledge had known each other for nearly a year by this time. There's actually a funny story about Green and Rutledge having to share a bed shortly after the Battle of Guilford Courthouse. Each man complained during the night that the other was hogging most of the space in the bed and nearly pushing the other one out of it. After struggling for a time, they realized that an actual hog had climbed into the bed with them and was looking for its own warm night's rest as well. The two men had a good relationship. Both men agreed that they needed to raise more troops and do whatever was necessary to keep people from failing to pick a side. Shortly after his arrival, Rutledge issued a proclamation to prevent the militia from plundering civilian homes. This was a concern that might cause popular opinion to turn against the cause. Rutledge also issued orders to Marion that no soldier should be granted leave for any reason other than sickness. Any man who refused to serve should be sent to British lines and have his property confiscated. The families of any men who were serving with the British would also be removed from their homes and sent to the British lines. Rutledge also ordered the arrest and property confiscation of several merchants who had cooperated with the British in the past, despite their current willingness to back the Patriot cause. He also called for the execution of any, quote, Negroes who granted any aid or assistance to the enemy. Now, General Green also realized that he needed to ensure the soldiers under his command did not show signs of mutiny. Making an example was considered an important part of this. Sergeant John Hadley was brought up on charges of being disrespectful to an officer and of stating that he would never again endeavor to injure the enemy. Essentially, the sergeant was saying that he was done with the war and would no longer take orders. General Green ordered his court-martial. Perhaps due to bad timing, the court-martial met on August 5th, the day after the British execution of Isaac Hayne. So the court was in no mood to be merciful. The court ordered the sergeant guilty and ordered his execution. The following day, General Green ordered the army to parade and bear witness as Sergeant Hadley was shot and killed. Green also hanged other soldiers around this same time. All of these were Continental soldiers who had deserted and joined with Loyalist forces against the Patriots. Several others were also convicted of desertion or plundering, and were punished with severe lashings. On August 23, 1781, Green's Continentals broke camp and took the army back into the field. His army had spent just over a month in camp 
and was now ready to re-engage with the enemy. The largest remaining British force in South Carolina, outside of Charleston, was the force that Lord Ralden had left in Orangeburg after giving up Camden and Fort 96. After Ralden personally gave up his command and returned to London, command of this force fell to Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Stewart. Back in June of 1781, Colonel Stewart had arrived in South Carolina in command of the 3rd Regiment of Foot. This was one of the three regiments that was sent to Charleston as reinforcements. Stewart was an experienced officer, a veteran of the Seven Years' War. He was about 40 years old and with over 25 years' experience in the Army. This, however, appears to have been his first deployment in North America. Stewart was the officer who had opposed the plan by Lord Ralden and Nisbet Balfour to send a relief force to protect the British outpost at Fort 96. There was also a fight about overall command in the South. General Cornwallis had left Ralden in command, but the newly arrived Stewart outranked Ralden. Eventually, Ralden led the attempt to relieve Fort 96, and Stewart brought out his own relief force to assist Ralden, eventually with this entire group settling in Orangeburg, which is about 70 miles northwest of Charleston. The British force at Orangeburg held a good defensive position, which is why Green avoided an attack there before giving his army a rest in August. That said, many South Carolina leaders wanted to remove this last British outpost and force all of the enemy back into Charleston. While the Americans were in camp, the British began to spread out a bit, Stuart had taken a position at McCord's Ferry, which was about 20 miles north of Orangeburg and only about 15 miles south of Green's camp in the High Hills. Flooding, however, made a direct approach for either army impossible. Green ended up marching his Continentals north to Camden so that they could approach the enemy from another direction. Green left his soldiers who were too sick for duty in Camden, then marched the rest toward the British camp. By September 1st, The Continentals were camped near Beaver Creek, just outside the Loyalist stronghold of Orangeburg. Green remained there for several days, awaiting expected reinforcements from Henderson and Pickens. By September 7th, the Continentals were at Burdell's Plantation, only about seven miles from the enemy. Most of the militia and state troops had arrived, and Green planned his attack for the following morning. Green decided to use the same unorthodox deployment that had worked well for him in several recent battles. He deployed the militia in front. Now, of course, this time, the lines would not simply be awaiting a British attack. He expected those militia troops to advance on the enemy. Now, of course, by this time, most of the militia that were fighting with him were experienced soldiers. There were two battalions from South Carolina and two from North Carolina. The right flank fell under the command of Colonel Marion and Andrew Pickens led the left flank. The two center battalions were led by Continental Colonel Francois Malmedy Gray, better known as the Marquis de Malmedy. Now, I haven't mentioned Malmedy before. He was one of the first French officers to join the Continental Army, arriving in Rhode Island in late 1776, nearly a year before Lafayette. Before that, he had been serving as a lieutenant in the French Army in Martinique. Lieutenant Malmedy briefly served as a brigadier general with the Rhode Island militia before finally receiving a colonel's commission in the Continental Army. Since he had briefly served as a brigadier, Malmedy complained to Washington that he should have been commissioned as a general, 
but this argument got nowhere. Later, Washington transferred Malmedy to serve under General Horatio Gates. Malmedy appears to have remained a troublesome officer. After Gates was defeated at Camden and Green took command, Malmedy spent much of his time badmouthing Green and calling for Green's removal. Eventually, Green sent Malmedy to North Carolina to recruit militia and obtain more supplies. Malmedy returned with a brigade of North Carolina militia in time to participate in the battle. So, Green gave Colonel Malmedy command of the center of his front line. Now, backing up this front line of militia were two small field cannons, three-pounders. The artillery came under the command of Captain Lieutenant William Gaines. Continentals made up the rear line. On the right, the North Carolina line marched under the command of General Sumner. Colonel Utho Holland Williams commanded the right flank, made up of the Maryland line. And in the center, Lieutenant Colonel Richard Campbell led two regiments of the Virginia line. Green also, in front of the militia, deployed an advance force of 200 South Carolina state troops under the command of Lieutenant Colonel William Henderson. This was the remainder of Sumter's division and also Light Horse Harry Lee's cavalry. In reserve, Green held William Washington's Continental Dragoons and the Delaware Line under Captain Robert Kirkwood. Green formed his men into four columns and began to march before dawn on September 8th. Despite the proximity of the enemy, the British commander had no idea that an attack was imminent. The British had lost most of their cavalry and were unable to conduct effective reconnaissance. Around 6 a.m., two American deserters entered the British camp and told Colonel Stewart that he was about to be attacked. Stewart deployed Major John Coffin with 140 infantry and 50 cavalry to investigate. After marching about three miles, Coffin spotted the American advance force under Henderson and immediately ordered a charge. The South Carolina soldiers held their ground and returned fire, killing five and wounding others from the attacking force. At this point, after making contact with the enemy, Green moved his army from columns into lines of battle. The British advance force under Coffin continued to return fire as it slowly fell back. By about 9 a.m., the American advance made contact with the main British force. Now, on the British side, Stuart had three regiments of regulars, supplemented by provincial regiments, primarily from New York and New Jersey. These were all experienced soldiers who had been fighting in the Southern Campaign for over a year. Provincial Lieutenant Colonel John Harris Kruger, the former commander of Fort 96, commanded the advance line. Stuart also employed Major John Marshbanks in a blackjack thicket along the river to cover the British right. Behind the British right flank was a large brick house that gave coverage to the entire battlefield and whose walls were strong enough to block musket balls. Colonel Stewart ordered a detachment of New York provincials to take cover in the house and fire from the second-story windows if the Americans were able to push forward. Green probably expected that his front line of militia would break and fall back after a few volleys. While many of the militia had fought in skirmishes before, few of the men were experienced in more formal field battles that required them to stand in line and exchange fire with the enemy. The British fired into the militia lines using field cannons. The militia, however, held their lines and continued to fire volleys back at the British. Colonel Williams later noted that, quote, 
it was with equal astonishment that both the second line and the enemy second line and the enemy contemplated these men, steadily, without faltering, advance with shouts and exhortations into the hottest of the enemy fire, unaffected by the continual fall of their comrades around them. The two lines just stood and continued fire for some time. Eventually, the North Carolina militia under Malmedy began to falter. At that point, Green pushed forward the Continentals under Sumner to hold the center of the line. Eventually, Patriot lines began to run low on ammunition. As the rate of fire began to decrease, the Loyalist Provincials rushed forward with a bayonet charge. The Patriots withdrew in good order, but then pushed forward again. Williams's command of the American right flank advanced into the British lines. On the American left, the British fire from that blackjack thicket took a heavy toll on the Maryland line. Green ordered Colonel Washington to advance into the thicket with his dragoons and with the Delaware infantry to clear out this enemy fire. Washington charged his horsemen into the thicket quickly, with the infantry unable to keep up. The British, who were in the thicket, held their position, and so Washington's horsemen found themselves in the midst of a wooded thicket, unable to maneuver their horses effectively, and British fire decimated the horsemen. Washington's horse was shot, and when it fell, the colonel was trapped under his horse. A British soldier rushed up and bayoneted Washington in the chest. The cavalry were decimated by the time the Delaware infantry finally arrived and was able to push the British line that was in the thicket. As the American left advanced, the British defenders took their position in the brick house as planned. Some of Lee's infantry chased the British into the house, hoping to gain access before they could close the doors. There was apparently a real struggle at the door, but eventually the British managed to close it. The Americans had to pull back from the house, using prisoners as human shields against the fire from inside the house. As the Americans pushed into the British camp, which was behind the main British lines, the army seemed to dissolve. The exhausted and hungry American militia fell out of line and began pillaging the tents for food and anything else of value. As the American lines fell apart, the British counterattacked. Green had brought up his six-pounder cannons to use against the brick house as the Americans tried to push back against the British counterattack in the camp. Colonel Campbell fell, mortally wounded. The artillery crews drew heavy fire from the provincial riflemen inside the house, so the Americans were taking very heavy casualties. The British then pushed forward and seized the cannons from the enemy and pulled them back into their own lines. They also drove the American looters out of the camp and sent them running. Although the British successfully recaptured the camp, their leader, Major Marshbanks, was fatally wounded in the fighting. The Americans pulled back to a wood line, but then rallied again. By this time, the fight had been in full engagement for hours, and the Americans were running low on ammunition and water. So at this point, General Green opted to pull back and withdraw. Given the ferocity of the fighting and the unwillingness of either side to back down, the casualty rates were extremely high. The well-directed rifle fire, particularly from the House, took its toll on American officers. 56 officers and 40 sergeants were killed or wounded. Colonel Washington managed to survive that bayonet wound to the chest, but he was taken prisoner. Militia General Andrew Pickens also survived a severe bullet wound to the chest, which troubled him for the rest of his life. 
In total, the Americans took over 500 casualties, about a quarter of those engaged. The British suffered an even higher casualty rate of about 450 killed and wounded and another 350 captured. Both commanders claimed victory. Green reported a total victory over the enemy. Although he left the field, he said he left a picket guard behind to watch the enemy. Green had nothing but good things to say about his officers. Even Colonel Lee, who many others criticized that day for not remaining with his cavalry during the battle and sort of being all over the place. Stuart claimed a British victory to his superiors since he held the field at the end of the day. However, the British casualties forced him to withdraw over the following days, and he eventually had to pull back to the British lines around Charleston, which, from a strategic level, was what Green was hoping this battle would do in the first place. Green also withdrew his forces, and a week later, his army was back in camp and the high hills of Santee. A few skirmishes continued in the following days, but both sides needed to contend with large numbers of wounded. Utah Springs would be the last major battle in the Carolinas. Next week, we're going to move north again as George Washington attempts to move the combined French and Continental armies toward Virginia and Yorktown. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show, part of the Airwave Media Network. Thanks to my Patreon supporters in the Alexander Hamilton Club, George Davis, Mike Hager, John Salentano, Michael Mulhern, and the Sons of the American Revolution. The Sons of the American Revolution actually has their own podcast. You can check it out at fastfunhistory.com. Thanks also to Robert Morris Circle supporters, Greg Pusak, and 10CrucialDays.org, where you can learn all about Washington's Crossing and the battle that kept the American Revolution alive. Remember, you can also support this podcast through one-time gifts via PayPal or Venmo. Also, if you shop on Amazon, remember to start your session by clicking on one of my book links. Even if you don't buy the book, I get credit for whatever you buy during that session, it's a great way to support this podcast without spending any money that you weren't going to spend anyway. I also want to remind everyone that our American Revolution Roundtable on Zoom is going to be a week early in February. And normally, we meet on the second Wednesday of each month. But since the second Wednesday in February is also Valentine's Day, I hope that you will have something better to do that night. So instead, we're going to meet on Wednesday the 7th. 
If you want to be sure to get a Zoom link for this event, we meet every month. It's a live event where we talk about different topics in the American Revolution. Join my mailing list on MailChimp so that you can be informed of these things. As I said in the main episode this week, Utah Springs was the last major battle in the Carolinas. And other than Yorktown and Virginia, it was the last in the South more generally. I'm going to cover the Yorktown campaign over the next few weeks, and that's going to put all this in better context. But the British were essentially done fighting at this point and just waiting for the end. I mentioned that officers suffered a high casualty rate in this battle, and I failed to mention that the British commander at Utah Springs, Alexander Stewart, was also injured in the battle. It was a relatively minor injury in the elbow, but it does show that he was in the thick of things. Stuart came from a prominent Scottish family. I guess some of his ancestors made the mistake of not being born first, so he didn't have a title, but he really came from a family with a great deal of wealth and power. His father was a member of Parliament, as was his brother, William. Alexander would also enter Parliament himself after the war, and he remained a British Army officer and continued to climb through the ranks. In 1790, he would rise to the rank of Major General, and would lead an army against the French at Flanders. In making my book recommendation this week, I will admit that I relied heavily on John Buchanan's The Road to Charleston in preparation for this episode, but I've already recommended that book. So this week, I'm recommending a book that focuses specifically on this battle. It's called Utah Springs, The Final Battle of the American Revolution's Summer Campaign by Robert Dunkerley and Irene Boland. It's a pretty short book, well under 200 pages, but it does focus on the battle, and it includes some interesting appendices, which have detailed information on those who fought in the battle, and some modern archaeological information about the battlefield. So, if that sounds interesting, get a copy of Utah Springs, The Final Battle of the American Revolution's Summer Campaign. My online recommendation is an older book called The History of South Carolina in the Revolution, 1780-1783. As you might guess from the title, this is obviously a much broader book than just Utah Springs, but it gives good coverage of the battle, and it puts the battle into the larger context of the war. It was first published in 1902, so it's in the public domain and available on archive.org. As always, I've included direct links on my blog and website. My question this week comes from Brandon O'Brien, who asks, I was wondering if the state militia got paid differently than regulars. When and how did states merge from the Continental Army to the United States Army? Also, what is the difference between regulars and state militia? Well, Brandon, I'm going to start off with that last part first. Let's differentiate between, there are actually three types of soldiers in the war. First, you have the regulars. On the Patriot side, these were known as the Continentals. These soldiers usually had multi-year enlistments. They would go wherever they were ordered. And these were generally considered the best trained soldiers and the most reliable soldiers. Now, you also had state soldiers, who were also considered regulars. Like Continentals, a state soldier served under an enlistment that was usually a year or longer. These soldiers tended to have more training and experience. They were professional soldiers. And while Continental soldiers were paid by the Continental Congress, state soldiers were part of a state-run army that was paid by the state legislature. State soldiers almost never left their borders. 
Although sometimes they would go into another state if it was necessary for the defense of the state for where they were from. Now, finally, you have a third category, which is militia. In many states, all males between a certain age were required to serve in the militia. The men would turn out a couple of times each year for some very basic training and then just go home again and live as civilians. Militia was very common throughout New England before the war because they were needed to defend against Indian attacks. In the South, militia were also used to prevent Indian attacks and were also used to patrol for escaped slaves and put down occasional slave revolts. Interesting, Pennsylvania never really had a history of militia, but they had something called associators, which developed right before the war began. Associators were pretty much like militia, except being in a militia was mandatory, and associators were a voluntary organization. Now, during wartime, militia training might be more frequent. In times of need, the governor would call out the militia to deal with an immediate military emergency. As soon as that emergency was over, the militia would simply return to their homes. Many states had restrictions that prevented militia from serving longer than a limited period of time, like 30 or 90 days. The result was that militia tended to be less experienced in battle, although, as we saw in today's episode, after many years of fighting in state, a good deal of the militia tended to collect considerable battlefield experience as well. As far as pay went, the Continental Army paid privates $20 for every three months of service, which works out to $6.67 a month. That's not much to begin with, and that amount became essentially worthless when the Continental paper money went through hyperinflation. Officers got more. For example, a colonel earned $50 a month, but... Again, by late war, even that $50 in Continental dollars was virtually worthless. The Continental Army also began to offer signing bonuses. The signing bonuses were usually paid in gold or silver because that was the way you attracted people to take it. Uh, But this was a one-time payment, and it wasn't a huge amount of money, maybe $10, $20. It really depended on how desperate Congress was at the time and how much money they had. As the war dragged on and it became harder to recruit, Congress later offered the promise of free land to enlistees if they survived the war. That was great because it was a very big benefit, and it wasn't one that Congress actually had to pay at the time it was offered. State troops and militia tend to get paid about the same amounts, although you have to remember militia only got paid for the days they were on active duty. Many states had their own currencies at the time, which often varied in value compared to the continental dollar, so making comparisons between the two can get really complicated really fast. But there were cases where state troops and militia were getting paid more than the continentals because the state was desperate in trying to build up its armies. The Continental Congress frequently complained about this because doing that made it impossible to recruit more continentals in the state. After all, if you got paid more in the state army and the duty was easier, why wouldn't you do that? So state pay compared to continental pay was often similar, but as I said, varied with different states and at different times. You also ask about merging the continental army into the U.S. Army. The continental army almost completely disbanded after the war. There were only really a few dozen soldiers still on active duty, and these soldiers were only kept around mostly to be guards at forts or federal installations to make sure that somebody didn't come in and steal the cannons. 
if there were any times when the military was needed between the end of the war and the adoption of the Constitution, that really just fell on state militia. The U.S. Army was established after the adoption of the Constitution in 1789. That was when the Continental Congress ended. I know some people call it the Confederation Congress, but that was the Continental Congress. The few Continental officers and enlisted men simply continued service in the new U.S. Army. States continued to maintain their own armies and militias. State militias remained largely independent of the new federal government until the Militia Act of 1903. If you have a question you'd like me to answer, please reach out to me either via email or on Twitter, Facebook, Quora, or Reddit. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today.